Hi, everyone. We're still good? Cool. My name's Tamara. I'll be reading tonight. Uh, the passage is James chapter 5, reading verses 1 to 12. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Hi everyone, my name is Joel, one of the pastors here at Wollongong Baptist Church. If I'm yet to meet you, I'd love to meet you over uh, supper afterwards. Um, how about I pray? Uh, Father God, we want to thank you so much uh, for the joy and privilege it is right now to sit under your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that by your spirit you may teach us and change us. Uh, Father, I pray and particularly be with me, help my words to be clear. Uh, and Lord, I pray that at the end of this time together, Lord, we may love you more. We may understand who we are, but also how great you are. And so, Father, please be with us in this moment. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as most of you should know by now, uh, we've been studying the book of James, specifically in a series entitled Authentic Faith. Uh, the book of James is written by a guy called James. And it's a book written to Christians about how to cultivate authentic faith and how to avoid a hypocritical faith. Uh, at the start of this series, I uh, mentioned to you a recent report that has been done by McCrindle Research, uh, an Australian-based uh, research company. Uh, and uh, basically, in this report, what they came up, to, what they were able to summarize was that the greatest attractor towards a Christian faith was Christians who had an authentic faith. And that the greatest repellent towards a Christian faith was Christians who had a hypocritical faith. Most recently, as some of you also know, uh, the Australian census data has been released. And so we've been able to see, I guess, how is Australia going at relating to, I guess, religion in regards to Christianity. Uh, there's a graph that will come up on the screen, hopefully. 
which basically gives us an indication as to uh, yeah, Australians' religious affiliation from 1966 to 2016. What you can see on the graph is that the top line is Christianity and how people feel like they relate to um, Christianity. In 1966, uh, 88% of Australians said that they were affiliated with Christianity somehow, but they, they were Christians or they disliked Christianity, went to church, different things. Whereas last year, in 2016, that number has dropped to about 52%. And so what we're seeing in our nation is that our nation in particular is becoming more and more secular, as you also see that blue line that is growing uh, is no religion, is no religion. The reason why I wanted to point this out to us is maybe this series so far, uh, as we look at the book of James, my hope is, is that you've realized that I want you to look inward. I want you to look at your own heart. I want you to reflect whether or not you have authentic faith, whether or not actually what you believe matches how you live. And, and I want you to keep doing that. But at the same time, as we, as we hit what is a really difficult passage and a hard-hitting one, I also want you to look outward. And I want you to realize actually that your faith makes a difference in other people's lives. That when it comes for our church making a difference in Illawarra, when it comes to trying to share the gospel and see more people come to know Christ, your faith matters. That your authenticity matters. And so keep that in mind. And, and that's why in particular we're looking at the book of James. You see the book of James, like I said, is written by James, who's a half-brother of Jesus. And he's quite an intense dude. Uh, I'm guessing you felt that for the last few weeks. But let me just also remind you of James' story, because I think it's helpful as we look at the book of James as to who this guy was. You see, James, like I said, half-brother of Jesus. And so he was a part of Jesus' family. And when Jesus was doing miracles and teaching people, James thought Jesus was crazy. He thought he was crazy. But then when Jesus resurrected from the dead, James didn't think he was crazy, but instead he thought he was Lord. As a result, James then went on to be a pillar in the church, the early church in Jerusalem. This is a man who was quite intense, and he's a man that ended up becoming one of the first martyrs of the Christian faith. In other words, he died for being a Christian. Now, the details as to how he died are a little bit debated, but what is undebated is the fact that when he died, he was asked to recant his Christian faith, his belief in his brother Jesus being God. But he didn't. He didn't. You see, I, I want you to realize this, in particular as we go to the book of James, and what is another hard-hitting night? Because you see, James is quite intense, and you can understand why when you understand how he lived and the time he lived in. You see, you see, James is different to Paul. I don't know about you guys, but if I was to receive a letter, I would want a letter from Paul, right? Like when, when Paul writes letters to churches, like, for example, the Thessalonians, he's like, you know, grace and peace to you. Like, I thank God for you every time I, I pray, right? Like, James doesn't do that. Do you know what James's greetings are? I don't know if you've, met, you've noticed this. In verse 1, greetings. Like, <laughs> that's it. And then he's, there's no, like, you know, trying to butter you up for, like, a hard-hitting point. He's just straight away, verse 2 of chapter 1. Oh, hey, by the way, consider it joy when you go through suffering. Like, the dude's intense. Like, like, when I think of James, and he was a pastor, a pastor of a big church, right? I don't think of, you know, a pastor who's really kind-hearted, you know, really sensitive, someone that you would, you know, really gentle, you know, not someone that would ask you questions like, have you ever considered that maybe, you know, the sin that you're doing right now is, is not good for you? Like, he wasn't asking, you know, inductive questions. You know, I feel like he's more of someone who just would be blunt and just tell you how it is. 
he's quite intense. Like, like when I think of James, actually what I think of is, you know, like a really tough coach. You know, I don't know if you ever have a tough coach when you played some sort of sport, but uh, I remember a tough coach with, with, with cricket. And what he would do is he would be very blunt with me, very direct as to where were my weaknesses and trying to prepare me for the matches ahead. You know, that's what I think of James. But I don't know about you, but personally, as I've been reading the book of James, as we've been listening to these sermon series, as I've been preaching it, almost week in, week out, I feel like you know, I'm in a boxing match. And I'm going to hit from different directions. And the question that's going through my head now as we come towards the end of this series is, how am I going to persevere in authentic faith in the long haul? Like, how am I going to keep on doing all the stuff that James wants us to do? How am I going to rejoice when I go through suffering? Like, how am I not going to be deceived and be a doer, not just a hearer of the word? Like, how am I going to not show favoritism? How am I actually going to have faith that works? How am I going to tame my tongue? How am I going to listen to wisdom from above and not from below? How am I going to keep doing this for the long haul? And so I don't know about you, but the question that comes through my head is, how can we persevere when it comes to authentic faith? I think that's a big question that James is trying to address in this passage. And, and can we be honest? It's, it's so much easier to be a Christian and to be a hypocrite. Like, it's so much easier. It'd be so much easier to say that I follow Jesus, but when I go through trials, I'm miserable. It's so much easier to say, I follow Jesus, but when it comes actually to being a hearer of the word, that's all I'm going to be. I'm not going to be a doer. When it comes to my tongue, no, nah, I'm not going to tame that. When it comes to faith and deeds, I'm just going to stick with faith, but not care about deeds. When it comes to being about humility, what we learned last week, no, nah, I'm going to be arrogant. It's so much easier to be a hypocrite than it is to be authentic. Than it is to be authentic. Which is why I reckon as we come to this passage, James wants to answer the question that most of us probably have, which is like, how do I do this for the long haul? How do I persevere in my faith? How do I persevere in my faith? I think that's a big question, this passage. And I think James gives us two tips, two tips. The first tip that he gives us is be alert, be alert. And the second tip is be patient, be patient. And so let's have a look at chapter 5, verse 1. Let's look at the first tip, which is to be alert. So chapter 5, verse 1, James says this. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. I think tip number one, like I said, is be alert. Be alert. Why? Well, because judgment is coming. Because judgment is coming. Look, I, I want to be direct with you here, like James is direct. The greatest danger, one of the greatest dangers to your faith is how you view wealth and is your desire for wealth. How you view wealth and, and the desire, your desire for wealth. You see, we live in a world which will say to you that if you want comfort, if you want security, if you want joy, if you want peace, wealth is the answer. And James writes this passage to say to us, be aware of wealth, that it is like a toxic cocktail that will bring judgment upon you. Now, I've been thinking about this passage for the last few weeks, and I've been trying to think, who is James writing to here? Like, when he, when he says this, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail, who, who's he talking to? And I think who he's talking to here is, first, I think he's talking to people who call themselves Christians, and yet love wealth even more so than a little bit than Jesus. They might say that they're followers of Jesus, but their pockets show a different story. 
But I also think, secondly, that this passage is written to those who love Jesus to encourage them to keep on persevering in a world that hungers for money. Now, to be honest with you, maybe as the Bible reading was being read, you're like, I don't know if I want to listen to this talk tonight. But truth be told, I want us to sit here in this passage and and I want you to think through how does this passage apply to you? Because I think it's so easy for you to deceive your own heart as this passage was being read out about wealth and to go, you know what, I'm not rich. The guy of the BMW, he needs to listen to this tonight. Not me. Not me. When truth be told, we need to be aware of the dangers of money. As Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but when I hear that verse from Jesus, part of my heart is like, nah, but I'm the exception, right? Like, I'm going to be the, the one rich person that will get through. I wonder if that goes through your heart too. And so with that in mind, let's go through this passage and let's see whether or not it's speaking to our hearts and whether or not we need to check whether or not we love money or we love Jesus. Let me read to you verse 2 and 3. James says this, Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Uh, I've been married to my wife Emma for seven and a half years and in those seven and a half years we've moved eight times Uh, and so as a result we don't have a lot of stuff lying around our house Um, and as a result I I find people who are like hoarders you know people who just have like can't throw things out like I find those people strange Uh, because I'm just like use it sell it get rid of it throw it out give it to someone else like I don't understand why you would hoard things. And so, I don't know about you, but when I, when I read this passage and he talks about hoarding, I think of, yeah, those people who just got lots of stuff. And you know, James here is actually talking about people who hoard wealth. People who hoard wealth. Maybe people who've got a humongous savings account. Maybe people who've got a few different properties. Maybe people who have got lots of different, I don't know, gadgets or different things. People who are trying to gather as much things for themselves. So not necessarily rubbish, but stuff that matters. Well, can I break something to you, specifically when it comes to money? I think what James is trying to say to us here quite clearly is that money is a terrible God. That money is a terrible God. That, that silver and gold is a terrible God. You see, like I said before, the world wants to parade to us that if you have more money, then you have less anxieties. Let me give you an example of how that's just not true. Um, last night I was watching Netflix and my computer like uh, dropped down onto the ground and I was like oh like freaking out it was going to break right and then Emma said to me she said Joel uh, I didn't freak out that much actually I was a bit like oh I'll be okay it's a little scratch and she said to me Joel you're so much easier to be around when you don't have any new technology because when I had that computer three years ago I would have been freaking out like I would have been rubbing it all off and be like we're not touching the computer ever again we're just going to go put it away and we would just go back to TV right And so when I got that computer, I was thinking, great, this will get rid of all my anxieties that I'm having with this frustrating old computer, and it did. But then it just replaced those anxieties with new ones about how I care about this new computer and how it's going to get scratched. You see, money doesn't replace your anxieties, it just gives you new ones. There's a a Danish philosopher um, known Soren as well, who came up with this quote, which I think is quite helpful, which is going to be on the screen, which just basically repeats the point I just made. He says this, Riches and abundance come hypocritically clad in sheep's clothing, pretending to be security against anxieties. 
and they become then the object of anxiety. They secure a man against anxieties just about as well as the wolf that is put, that is put to tending the sheep. If you love Jesus, then you'll be someone who'll be more than happy to give away things, to not hoard. You'll be someone who would be more than happy to give money away, not only to the church, but to, to, to Baptist World Aid or to Compassion or to ministries or to missionaries. You'd be more than happy to, to lend things to other people because it, you know that you care about Jesus more than you care about your things. I wonder if any of us here are hoarding stuff and we need to check our heart. Let's move on though. It gets even harder. Let's look at verse 4. James says this, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. I want you to notice here how there's unjust accumulation or like, in, I guess, improper gaining of finances, but also there's unjust treatment of the workers. If you love money more than Jesus, then you'll gain money illegally. You won't pay your taxes, you won't pay people what's their due, or if you're someone who's maybe not a, in charge of people, but you're someone who works with someone else, you won't fill out your timesheets properly, you'll lie in your scheme to get money for you. You know, James says here, actually, if you love Jesus more than money, then you actually won't treat people unjustly, you'll pay people what they're due, and you won't try and rip people off yourself. You'll fill in your timesheets adequately. You'll fill in your tax returns because you know that money is not what's going to bring you joy. Let's look at verse 5. James goes on, he says, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. Years ago, I used to go to my uncle's farm down in Victoria. And when we used to go down there, he used to have a lot of cattle. And there was one or two times where I was able to go with him as we took his cattle. We got it herded up, put it into uh, the truck and then took it to the markets. And then at the markets, those cattle get bid on. And then whoever wins them, I guess, can have them as a pet, but most likely kills them and eats them for dinner or sells them their meat. And I, and I learned a really valuable lesson there. And when it came to actually herding up the cows and choosing which cows should be, I guess, put into the truck and taken to the markets, my uncle chose the fat cows. He chose the cows that were well-fed. He chose the cows that decided, you know, no matter how old or young they were, they lived it up in luxury. They smashed those, you know, all the grass in front of them. They were the ones that were taken to slaughter. Whereas the other cows that maybe were a bit lazy or maybe just, you know, didn't get as much food in their belly, they got to live longer. They got to live longer. You know, I find this is a really interesting metaphor and quite a, a powerful one that James is trying to say here. And basically what he's trying to say to us is be careful when it comes to your wealth. And understand that indulgences will cost you. Like, like I think we know this, like, for example, here and now. Like, if you want that five-bedroom house, if you want that boat as well as those four different cars... If you do that, you're going to have no time for your family because you're going to be working so hard to get those things. And then when you have those things, you're going to be spending all your time trying to clean them or maintain them because they've got scratches on them. And before long, you know it, it's going to cost your relationships with your family, let alone your faith, and on and on I could go. There's consequences here and now. If you chase wealth, there'll be a cost. But even broader than that, James is saying here that actually there's a broader cost that if you love money over Jesus, that judgment is coming. That judgment is coming coming 
judgment is coming. Look, when it comes to this and indulgences in particular, I think I've been reflecting upon this. I think we need to watch our hearts and in particular things that we call needs. Uh, you know how there's a difference between want and need, right? Uh, like we joke all the time that Wi-Fi is a need. Like, uh, and, and, and maybe it is. I'm not too sure. But potentially it's not compared to like food and water and air. I, I don't know. But how easy it is it for us to justify what we probably are wants into needs. And what James is saying here is, be alert. Be alert. Judgment is coming. But let's have a look at verse 6 in particular. Because you know what, James doesn't just stop in verse 5. Instead of verse 6, he says this. He says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. We don't know exactly who he's talking about here when he talks about condemning and murdering. But I don't know about you, but whenever I read this verse, I can't help but not think about Jesus. My Lord Jesus. And how one of the pieces in the puzzle that led to his death was his close friend betraying him for money. Betraying him for wealth. Which, which makes me think, if I, if I follow Jesus and love him, why am I flirting with the thing that led to him being crucified and betrayed? I think James tackles money straight away on this topic of perseverance. Because I think he knows that if we want to persevere in the long haul then we need to be aware of the toxicity of wealth. If we want to persevere in our faith, we need to keep an eye on our finances and understand that where your money is is where your heart is at, as Jesus says in Matthew 16. I mean, Matthew 6, sorry. Now, look, this is a hard-hitting topic when it comes to finances and whether or not actually, yeah, you are loving money more than you're loving Jesus, whether or not you're actually trusting your savings more than in your Savior. But can in particular, can I encourage you when you think about this topic to not look around you, like in particular, like not to look to people around you and not to think, no, it's the guy with the BMW that needs to think about this. It's the person who's got the bigger house that needs to think about this. Because can I be honest with you? You just don't know. You have no idea whether or not that person who has a BMW is the most generous person in the church. You have absolutely no idea. God doesn't want you to judge other people's hearts. He wants you to look at your own. He doesn't want you to look at other people's wallets and bank statements. He wants you to look at your own to evaluate whether or not you love Christ or you love the things of this world. You see, I think it's so easy for us to try and get out of the weight of this passage by saying, I'm not rich, other people are. And to try and challenge them to think about this. And I think in particular as well, I think maybe some of us in this room can sit here and go, yeah, but Joel, I'm not rich, so it's not speaking to me. Well, then... Let me ask you a question. Do you long to be rich? Do you long to be rich? I think most of us here do. Then ask yourself this question. Could, would I fall into the exact same temptations if I had that money in front of me? Do I love Jesus or do I love wealth? Do I trust in my savings or do I trust in my Savior? Because we have authentic faith, then we will check our bank statements and have a look to see how we're spending money and actually caring about this issue. How do we persevere? Will we be alert? Because judgment is coming. Because judgment is coming. I think we need to think about this, in particular if you're a follower of Jesus. You need to reflect on this as to whether or not how you're spending money is the way that God wants you to spend your money. Because one day Christ will come back and we'll give an account to how we use His resources. How do we persevere? 
Be alert. Judgment's coming. Be alert. Judgment is coming. Tip number two, be patient. Be patient. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. You know, most good coaches know when to push people, but they also know when to encourage. You know, they know when to yell, but they also know when to get their arm around people and be like, you know, it's going to be okay. You, you can do better. And I think what goes on here is, is, a, is a complete change in tone. You know, I think James starts off hard hitting so that people will listen to him and take this in and reflect upon their finances. But then I think here now he changes tone because he wants to encourage his brothers and sisters. He wants them to think about not only is judgment coming, but also is Jesus, is Jesus. And so like I said, tip number two, I think James tells us here is to be patient, is to be patient. Years ago, like I said, I used to go uh, visit my uncle's farm uh, down in Victoria. And so it was like about an eight-hour um, car trip. And for those eight hours, back then, I didn't have like an iPad or an iPhone, uh, but instead I had a Game Boy. Uh, I didn't have a colored Game Boy or one that had a backlight. I had a black and white Game Boy. And I didn't have a plethora of games, but I had one game. I had Tetris, right? And so for eight hours, you just hear this song like, like that for eight hours straight, okay? Like that was how those eight hours went as I just played Tetris. And as you imagine, I got bored. And so I'd ask my dad, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? Now that would have really annoyed my dad. And I know this because now I have children, right? And, uh, but can I, can I say something? I'm unbiased. My children are so much more impatient than me, right? <laughs> so much more. So much more. And look, I, I want to say this. I don't blame them. Like I, it's, it's not their fault, right? They live in a generation which is insane. Like, if you want music, stream it. If you want to watch a movie, just watch it on Netflix or iTunes. Everything is at your door straight away. Like, like matter of fact, it was a few months ago, I was watching, uh, I went to someone's house, and they put it on the TV for my boys to, I guess, entertain them. And then when the ads came on, my boys started yelling at me. And I got there, and they're like, what is it? And they're like, change the channel, what's going on? And they'd never seen commercials, like, in their life. Because they'd always watch Netflix and different things. Like, we live in a world which is basically, if you want something, you can get it right now. Like, I don't know about you, but personally, I struggle with patience. Like, I'm the dude, when I'm, if I'm on the escalator and someone's blocking that right-hand lane, I'm just fuming inside. I'm just like, move out of the way. Or if I'm watching Netflix, for example, and I've got MBN, right, so I've got good internet. If it's like the loading symbol, I'm just like, oh, like, what is this? Like, being patient is really difficult. I'm not a big fan of patience, to be honest with you. And yet if we want to persevere, James says, be patient, be patient. Let me read to you verse 7 and 8. This is what James says. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm. You know, like he's, he's pretty clear here. He's like, be patient, be patient. Jesus is coming back. Persevere, be patient. And, and I think it's really helpful as well that he gives us this imagery of a farmer. Now, I know some of you here are from the country, and so you know what a farmer is, but some of us here don't, right? And you're a bit like, what's a farmer? Like, what do they do? Like, anyway, um, I want to break something to you, right? Farmers, if you ever met one, are like some of the toughest people you'll meet, right? There's a friend of mine uh, called Peter Barrett, comes to our church, one of our deacons. He, he used to be a farmer, and the guy is just tough as anything, tough as nails, but he's also incredibly patient, He's one of the most patient men I've met, and he's also one of the most hard-working people I know. You know, and I love this imagery that he says to us. He says, be patient like a farmer, someone who works hard, but also someone who knows that good things are coming. 
You know, like farmers in particular, like they are waiting, they're patiently waiting for the rains to come. And then they're waiting for harvest to come. And if you've ever spoken to any of the country bumpkins here, you know, like such as like Drew, who I don't know where he is, like this guy goes insane when harvest comes around, right? Like I don't get it, but they know that good is coming. And so they can be patient. They can be patient. And I think we need to learn lessons from this. That, that as we await Christ's return, we need to be strong as farmers, hardworking as farmers, but also we need to be patient. We need to know that Christ is coming back. And how much better is that going to be than harvest? So much better. So much better. And so in this, this part, this is James' big idea. He's like, be patient, Jesus is coming back, right? But he doesn't just leave it there. Instead, he gives us some more content because we're dumb and we need to hear some more, okay? And so what he says to us is, be patient, Jesus is coming back. And then in verses 9 and 12, he gives us an example of what it looks like to be patient with one another. And then in verses 10 and 11, he gives us an example of what it looks like to be patient with God. And so let me read to you verse 9 to begin with. James says this, he says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. The word there for grumble could also be translated like complain or like groan or like yeah, just whinge. And so what James is saying here is, hey, look, as you're waiting Jesus' return, don't complain about your brothers and sisters. As you go through, you know, suffering, don't whinge and complain about those around you. Now, why is, he, why is he saying this? Well, because the judge is at the door. Jesus is coming back. And so can I kind of break something to you? Uh, if you've got a lot of content to complain about someone in your life, uh, God's got a lot more about you. And, and God could complain about you, couldn't he? He could complain about how you keep letting him down, keep doing dumb things. But instead, God shows you grace. God shows you favor. God loves you. And so, look, the more you, you dial into the gospel and the more you understand God's love for you, the easier it is for you to love others and to be patient with them. And so let's be patient with one another. Let's not complain and sigh and groan about one another. And at the same time, can I just point out something that what this passage is not saying? What this passage is not saying is that we need to be incredibly, un, sorry, unconditionally patient to everyone at all times, right? Like, this is James. This is the dude who points out sin and tells you how it is. This is the dude that is telling you that judgment is coming, that Jesus is coming back. So we need to go talk to people about Jesus. And so we need to not complain about one another. Yes, we need to be patient with one another. Yes, but we also need to be urgent when it comes to sin and shedding the gospel, sharing the gospel. And so don't overapply this passage and feel like what this means is that I never have those difficult conversations with people. No, it does. But his point here is don't complain about your brothers and sisters. Love them like Christ has loved you. Be patient with one another, but also be patient with God. You see, James here then gives us a few verses to help us in this regard. Let me read to you verse 10, 11. James says this, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I don't know if you've read the book of Job, so let me explain a few things to you. The book in particular, there's lots there to learn, but it's a book about patience. And it's a book about trusting in God and waiting for Him. Like it really is a book about patience. It, it tells you that in its content, but also in its form. Like it goes for 40 chapters. And if you ever read it, you're just like, oh man, can this, can this hurry up? Like it takes a bit of time. But it's a great book. And if you, if you don't know much about it, let me explain to you what occurs. 
in the opening scenes of Job, it tells us that God is on his throne and, the, and that the angels come to him. And the angels come present themselves to God. And one of the angels is the accuser, in other words, Satan. And, and Satan comes and then God says to Satan, what have you been up to? And he says, I've been roaming the earth, just having a look around. And, and then God is like, hey, have you, seen, have you seen Job? My follower Job, he loves me. He, he praises me. What, what a, Job's awesome. Did you, did you spot him? And then Satan says, yeah, I saw him, but of course he praises you. Like, you've blessed him. You've given him, you know, children and wealth. Like, of course, you've given him good things. And so get this. This is so scary, right? God says, okay, well, I'll give you, I'll give you permission. I think Satan actually asked if he could take those away, and therefore he wouldn't worship God. And God said, yeah, okay, you can do that. Take away his wealth and his children, but not his health. And let's see what happens. And so that's what occurs. Satan does his work, and as a result, Job loses seven of his children as well as all his wealth. And in that moment, what does Job do? Well, the only thing he's left with is his wife. And you're probably like, oh, isn't that sweet? No, she's not a great wife. Let me explain to you in a second why. But this is how Job responds to this suffering. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so God's like, see, Satan, see what happened here? And then Satan says to God, well, if you take away his health, then he will curse you and he won't anything to do, want anything to do with you. And then so God says, okay, you, you go tackle his health. And so that's what Satan does. He goes, attacks Job's health and he gets some painful, painful boils and, and different things. And what we see at that point in time is that his wife says to Job, great encouraging wife, great Barnabas, says, why don't you just give up on your integrity, curse God and die? And then after that, after his nice, encouraging wife, he then gets his friends, his best friends that come along and then for about 30 chapters just try and blame him for his own circumstances. And once again, it's like, but it's probably sin in your life, Job. That's why you need to repent and, and you know, turn to God. Because clearly God wouldn't have done, do this to you. It's a great book. And what ends up happening actually is that Job perseveres in his faith. And then God comes and comforts him. God shows up like he promised that he would and he's there and he explains to Job what's going on. You see, the reason why I think James is reminding us of the book of Job is because he wants us to give us an example that you cannot trump. Like I know some of you here are going through some tough times, but I wonder if any of us here have lost seven children plus all our wealth and also gone through like painful health issues as well. Because Job did. Job did. And he persevered to the end. You see, I think he, he reminds us of Job because the only person that trumps Job's suffering and perseverance is Jesus. And so I think this is helpful. It's helpful for us to have that example of Job and to keep on persevering. And so look, can I do what Job's friends should have done? Encourage you. That if you're struggling in your faith, if you're going through some difficult times, can I encourage you to persevere and to keep on going? Can I encourage you to do this? And in particular as well, can I encourage you to encourage other people to do this as well? Two weeks ago, I went to Sydney and as a result, uh, I was away from family and I wanted to use my time well. And so I was driving an hour to this conference thing. And so uh, I wanted to use that time well. And so I was praying to God saying, God, can you please help me use this time well, be it listen to sermons or podcasts or music, I don't know, something. And I felt convicted on two days to call two of my friends who are pastors and just encourage them. Just call them up and say, look, I don't know why, but I want to encourage you to persevere in your ministry, just to keep on going. Those two friends of mine are having a horrible time in ministry. 
there's things going on. They're both saying to me, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And I just said to them, look, God has used you in the past. God will use you in the future. He's given you his spirit. Persevere. Keep on going. Keep on going. But can I, can I point something out to you? Maybe you don't know this, but um, when you need encouragement, it's really hard to ask for encouragement. Like, I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Like, if I was to say to you guys, guys, I just really need encouragement. Like, when someone comes up to you and says, Joel, you're the best. Like, it feels so shallow. You know, and you're just like, oh, great. Thanks for that. And so, can I, can I, I'd love to see a culture here where we are constantly trying to encourage one another. Where we're encouraging one another to persevere in our faith, to pray for one another. And to not avoid the, the, the mistakes of Job's friends or his wife. Because we will go through difficult times. There will be times where you will find it difficult to find a job. There'll be times where your health will be going through issues. There'll be times where you have relationship issues. There'll be like times where you're struggling to have children. There'll be times where you're having conflict at work. There's, there's, like All of us are going to be going through issues. And that's why we need each other to encourage one another to persevere. To persevere. To persevere. And so James says to us, how do we persevere? Two tips. Be alert. Judgment is coming. But also be patient. Jesus is coming back too. Jesus is coming back too. When I was uh, growing up, I think uh, my favorite movie uh, was The Lion King. My guess here is that everyone here has seen The Lion King. If you haven't, I'm about to ruin the movie for you. Um, What I loved about this movie is I I watched it when I was a little rascal and I think I watched that movie about five times at the movies and I just kept on watching it and then I think I watched it maybe like 30 times on DVD Um, and I was reflecting upon this week that why do little kids such as myself a long time ago keep on watching the same movie on repeat, right? Because I don't know about you but once I've seen something now I'm like I don't want to see it for like 10 years and in particular why The Lion King? Like if you've ever seen The Lion King like it's a great movie but it's also really painful Right? In particular, in that opening you know, quarter of the movie and how like, Simba gets deceived by Scar so that he's in the wrong place and, and therefore Mufasa, his dad, has to come and save him and then like, dies. Like, as a dad, man, that breaks my heart. And, and then have Scar say to Simba, you know, it's all your fault, you need to leave the tribe and go out and exile on your own. Like, it's devastating. Like, like, when I watch that, it literally breaks my heart now, let alone when I was a little kid. And so, so why do kids go through that pain? You know, is it because, you know, they know that afterwards it's going to be this, you know, little pig and a little tiny meerkat and then, you know, they're going to sing a cool matatara. Like, you know, is that what gets them through the movie? I don't think that's it. You know, even that when, when Simba comes back to face his uncle Scar and there's this big battle and it's scary. Like, it's really scary, man. Like, Scar is scary. Why do kids put themselves through that? Well, it's because they know the ending. You know, they, they, they know that scene when, you know, Simba is going to have his own little carb and then the monkey is going to put it up in the air and, you know, they're going to sing that song and, you know, it's going to be you know, the imagery of the start and the beginning and we're all like, <gasps> and then it like ends. And you're like, that is why I watched the movie. You know, you know the ending, you know what's coming and that allows you to go through the ups and downs of that movie. You know, I think James is doing the exact same here. He wants us to keep our eyes on the ending. He wants us to remember that Jesus is coming back, that there is glory to come, that there is eternal life with Christ and his followers. But at the same time, there is also judgment and eternal damnation. He wants us to keep our eyes on the ending so that we'll persevere through the ups and the downs of life, so that we'll persevere and follow Christ as Lord. So how do we do that? Like I said, be alert. Be alert, but also be patient. Be patient. And when you struggle through the ups and downs of life, 
Keep your eyes not only on Job, but also on Jesus, the ultimate example of how to do this. I'm going to pray for us. Father God, we want to thank you so much that you are a God who saves us by faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that you are a God who cares, that a God who helps us when we go through the ups and downs of life. And Father, we know that you are so much more glorious than the money and wealth of this world. And yet, Lord, our hearts can be tempted towards wanting more, when what we need is more of Christ. And so, Lord, I just pray that you help us, that you humble us, to know that there is more joy in following Jesus than in some paycheck. And Father, I pray that you help us to be patient with one another. Lord, help us not to grumble and complain, but instead help us to keep our eyes fixed on what is to come. And so, Lord, please help us each day to remember that judgment is coming and that should drive us towards holiness and sharing the gospel. But also, Lord, remind us that Jesus is coming back, that there is glory to come, that there is rest to come. And we thank you so much for that. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.